Hebrews 13, verse 1 to 6. So we come into the end of the book of Hebrews. Um, in the final chapter now, and probably two or three more Sundays, and we'll be done with Hebrews. The theme for this morning's message is practical Christianity. Let's ask the Lord's blessing in prayer before we dive in. Holy Father, our God and our Savior, we draw near to the throne of grace once more. And I'm truly reminded that your word is so true when it speaks of our lives that fly away as a dream. Our lives, is, it's like the morning mist that disappears before the sun. Time flies. And you are the eternal one. And we draw near to you with great thanksgiving and thankfulness that you've given us your word in this world so that we will not be lost, so that we will not be in the dark, but that we'd be able to see the truth and the light. And I pray today that your spirit would guide us and show us the way, that your word would be the map for us to show us the way. That the Holy Spirit would teach us to read the map and understand it. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on your word as a traveller keeps his eyes on a lamp in a dark place until the day breaks and the morning star rises in our hearts. Amen. Now, to speak of practical Christianity is almost like talking of a round circle or a dead corpse. So as if, as if you get circles that aren't round or corpses that are alive. And in the same way, uh, practical Christianity, well, Christianity by definition is practical. Any Christianity that's not, that doesn't have a practical effect on your life, well, it's no Christianity at all. And I think that might be what the author is trying to tell us. He's trying to show us what life under the new covenant looks like. So let's read Hebrews 13 verse 1 to 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? First command, love the brothers. That's in verse 1 to 3. When I was in high school, I really looked up to my brother. I was so proud of my brother. He's a year older than I am. He's so good at sport. He was the head boy. He was strong in academics and really proud of him. And I wanted other people to think the best of my brother, to think the best about my brother. And just like I loved my brother and still do, we should love our brothers and sisters in the Lord, our fellow Christians. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. And there are many verses in the New Testament probably almost half a dozen that, that speak exactly that way. Brotherly love, brotherly love. And that's proof of someone who's a true Christian. That's a mark of a true Christian, 
that Christians love one another, didn't we? We learn from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and chapter 4, that if you hate your brother, then you're walking in darkness, and you're not a believer. And those who love their brothers, they're walking in the light, and they are true believers. And then it's also a very good testimony to the world when they see Christians loving one another. They'll know we are Christ's disciples. So in our trials, in our sufferings, when we go through difficult times, don't become bitter, don't pity yourself, but rather use it as an opportunity to encourage one another, to build one another up, to encourage your, your brothers in the Lord, your sisters in the Lord, and serve one another in practical ways. How do we do it? Well, first of all, in verse 2 it says, Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So the, the Greek word xenophobia means being afraid of foreigners. The Greek word philozenia means loving foreigners. And this is the word used here. We all know xenophobia. Well, this is philozenia. And that means loving strangers, showing hospitality to strangers. That doesn't mean you welcome any stranger into your house. We know what people do nowadays. They rock up at your gate. They ring the bell. They say, oh, we're the plumbers. We, we've been sent here to fix a, a blocked drain. Or we, we've been sent here to look at the electricity. We're from the municipality. And, and they lie. They're robbers. And in that way, they get into your house and they rob you. So this doesn't mean just any stranger. What it means is Christian missionaries, Christian preachers, and then fellow Christians. Uh, because a Christian preacher in those days, or a Christian missionary, would travel and preach in different towns, but he didn't always have money to stay in the hotel. And some even say that the hotels in those days were very immoral. And so this is why this author says, open your homes to these traveling preachers or to fellow Christians. And we have an opportunity as a church to do this. So next Sunday, 20th of September, we have a visiting preacher. We've got a missionary coming here. And I'll explain a bit more later on. But we've got a visiting missionary. And I want to encourage you to talk to me afterwards and say, listen, we'd gladly host the guy. It's just Saturday evening. He lands at 5 o'clock at the airport from Cape Town. And then, uh, then he flies back to Cape Town on Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock. So it's a very short time, but I want to encourage you, this is an opportunity for us to exercise the gift of hospitality, and I'd gladly do so. Um, but I think an opportunity for the congregation to learn how to show hospitality. And when you do that, and if you do that, don't complain. 1 Peter 4 verse 9 says, Show hospitality without grumbling. I grumbled. Last year, a missionary came from the United States. I don't know him from a bar of soap. Someone just called me and said, will you pick up the guy at the airport? Because they know I live close by. And then I wasn't sure, am I now supposed to host this guy at my house or not? And I complained about it. And then I had to confess my sin later on and say, please forgive me, Lord. Especially since elders need to be an example in this to show hospitality, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. I think Chris and Gerda and our church are a very good example of showing hospitality. They hosted missionaries, and they probably met them once or twice and opened their house for these missionaries. I think that's great. Follow that example. Now, again, this, this verse doesn't mean 
you open your house and welcome anyone who just says, I'm a Christian preacher. Because in the book of Second John, not John 2, but Second John, at the, toward the end of the New Testament, there's a verse in chapter, on that uh, book, letter in verse 10. It's only one chapter long, the book. And it says, if anyone comes to you and he doesn't bring the teaching, meaning the teaching of Christ, don't receive him into your house and give him, don't give him any greeting. If it's a false teaching, in other words. So, I think what this verse in Hebrews is saying, this is for someone who's really a Christian. You welcome them, and usually they come with a reference. Someone has referred them, and someone calls you and says, I know this guy is a devoted follower of Jesus, please welcome him. Why should you welcome strangers, strange Christians, Christians you haven't met? What does verse 2 say? Yeah, it says, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So, some people, they didn't even know it was a an angel that they welcomed into their house, like in Genesis 18 and again in Genesis 19, and sometimes even the Lord himself, like in Genesis 18 and in the book of Judges, chapter 6 and chapter 13. So don't miss the opportunity. Remember, if you show hospitality to a fellow Christian, you're really doing it to Jesus. Jesus said so in Matthew 25:35. And then also, a part of this command to love our brothers in verse 3, the way we do it is... Remember the persecuted church. I remember uh, when visiting Taiwan in 2007, I went to a prison one day and we visited a man there, the missionary and I, and I had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. And that's, that's perfectly right. It's right to do so, but this is not what verse 3 is telling us. What verse 3 means, this is not about visiting criminals in prison. This is about visiting fellow Christians, people who are put in prison for their faith. People who are put in prison for preaching the gospel. They are persecuted. Like in verse 23, we read of Timothy who was in prison, or chapter 10, 34, some of the Christians were in prison. And now it says, don't forget them. Remember those. They need encouragement. Reminds me of a story I read in, in Brother Andrew's book, God's Smuggler. And Brother Andrew says, he's a Dutch Christian, Andrew van der Bale, And he visited... Um, persecuted Christians in uh, Romania. And so he spoke to this one pastor and his wife, and the wife started weeping, and she said, you know, for many years, I knew that the Christians in the Western world were praying for us, but now it's been so many years, I haven't heard from them. And we've never been able to write letters, and I, we received a letter, the last time we received a letter was 13 years ago. And now I realize we are forgotten. No one thinks of us anymore. No one knows our needs. No one prays for us. It makes me think of Psalm 142 verse 4. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. So if we remember the persecuted church, Christians who are persecuted in other countries, Christians who are really suffering, if we pray for them, if we send them gifts, Remember, we are doing it to Jesus. Jesus said that. I was in prison and you visited me, Matthew 25, 36. And they said, when? And Jesus said in verse 40, when you did it to the least of these my brothers, of these of my brothers, you did it to me. Now next week, this missionary that's coming, the reason he's coming, we invited him, we're flying him out, we paid for his ticket. And the reason is, we want him to come and help us how can we get involved in the persecuted 
with the persecuted church. How can we send money? Because we're praying for them. We've got Operation World Slides, um, and we pray for those countries, but now we want to meet Christians in those countries. Now we want to send money and support them. Now we want to actually fly out and meet them somewhere, or let them fly here, uh, uh, their pastor, and meet them. And build a relationship and encourage those Christians as we learn from these verses. And it's not only about Christians who are put in prison. It's Christians who are persecuted in, in any way, just in general. Because it says in the second part of verse 3, those who are mistreated, remember them also, since you also are in the body. And these, these Hebrew Christians were persecuted. Chapter 10, verse 34 um, the Christ, uh, believers throughout history have been persecuted. Hebrews 11, the end, the final verses. I think we'd be able to help these Christians in a much, much better way if we think ourselves and put ourselves in their shoes. Just think, what would you feel like if you were in their shoes? Do you remember what it was like when you were going through a very hard time and another Christian encouraged you? Well, then do, it, do the same to these Christians. Verse 3, again, it says... Uh, those who are in prison, as though in prison with him. Those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Think of that. The Bible teaches us if one member suffers, the whole body suffers. If one Christian suffers, the whole community, the whole church of Christ feels it. And that's the point of verse 3. Just as if you are in prison. For instance, a young man in, in former Czechoslovakia he received a pin, like a pin that you put to your blazer or your coat, a silver pin with a cup, a silver cup, and they call it the cup of suffering. And they say it's symbolic of the cup of suffering. We're going through a difficult time. We're persecuted. So he gave it to Brother Andrew in this book, God Smuggler, and he said, please take this with you to Holland. And when people ask you about it, what's that? Tell them. Tell them about us. And tell them we are part of the body. And we have pain. We feel pain. Okay, so that's the first command. Love the brothers. Second command, do not be like the world. That's in verse 4 to 6. So how are, how are we supposed to act if we don't want to be like the world? Well, verse 4 tells you that you should honor marriage. I remember many, many years ago, a man told me that when two people sleep together, when they have sex, they are married in God's sight. And actually, what he was trying to do is, he was trying to convince me that a guy who lives with his girlfriend, he's already married in God's sight. It's not sin. Well, that goes against a verse like John 4, verse 18, where Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. So merely living together and sleeping together doesn't make you married in God's sight. As Christians, we should have a high view of marriage. God's um, institution of marriage, as we read in Genesis 2, and also God's definition of marriage. Christians shouldn't talk down or talk cheaply about marriage or act cheaply about marriage. Here's God's definition of marriage. I've taken this from uh, various verses in the Bible. Proverbs 2, verse 17, you can go and check these up. Ezekiel 16, verse 8. Malachi 2, verse 14. Matthew 19, verse 4 to 6. And Ruth, chapter 4, especially the first half. So here's a definition of marriage. Marriage 
is a lifelong covenant before God and witnesses between one natural man and one natural woman. In other words, you didn't have an operation and a sex change. A natural man and a natural woman. So if we really want to honor marriage, as verse 4 says, then we need to stick to God's definition of marriage and we need to do the following. We need to see marriage as a picture of Jesus' relationship with His bride, the church. If we're going to honor marriage, then you can't live together, boyfriend and girlfriend, this guy and his girl, and you think, oh, this is exactly the same as being married. If you're going to honor marriage, you can't date someone for years and years and years and you never want to get married. Well, then that means you have a higher view of dating than of marriage. If you want to honor marriage, then your wedding day, your wedding ceremony must be explicitly Christian. So that would mean not loads and loads of alcohol and dirty music and dirty jokes when people make their speeches. If you're going to honor marriage, then you cannot get divorced for any reason and remarry for any reason. If you're going to honor marriage, then you cannot come into someone else's marriage and commit adultery. Take his husband. Take her... Or take his wife, sorry, or take her husband. If you're going to honor marriage, then you cannot act like the liberals do in the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. And you say, oh, people of the same sex can get married. A man can marry a man and a woman can marry a woman. If you're going to honor marriage, God's definition of it and the institution of it, then you cannot say, oh, to get married is just a formality. It's just a piece of paper. As long as you and I this woman and I, as long as we, we just make our vows to one another and to God, then it's fine. We don't need a piece of paper. Okay, and then if this, if this man leaves you for another woman, and he doesn't want to make a monthly contribution to raising the kids, what are you going to do then? Do you want a piece of paper now? Now you want to go to court and say, oh, I need the piece of paper. And then if we're going to honor marriage, we need to be respectful toward one another and not break each other down, not fight all the time, because that's not honoring marriage. You know, in the early church, the early Christians, it was exactly for this reason, at least one of the reasons, why the world looked at them with, with so much respect even though they hated the Christian, they respected them and they said, wow, look at these Christians. How they honor marriage. Because the early, the first century and second century is absolutely immoral. Uh, just the devotion of Christian wives to their husbands and to their children caused one pagan called uh, Libanius. And Libanius said, what women these Christians have. And that also goes for sexual purity. We need to be different from the world. Verse 4, verse 4 tells us, let the marriage bed be undefiled. So you can't defile, you can't stain the marriage bed with your sin. Stain it with pornography or with ugly pictures that you send on WhatsApp or you phone ugly numbers, sex numbers, or you commit adultery or polygamy, you take more than one wife or sex before marriage or homosexuality or rape or... Um, 
pedophilia, molesting children or prostitution or incest or bestiality or whatever other kinds of wicked sexually immoral sins. Now, obviously, society doesn't care about sexual sin, sexual immorality, but God will punish those people. He'll punish the sexually immoral, verse 4, and the adulterous. And the way he'll punish them is, well, in this life even, by sexually transmitted diseases and by church discipline and by just the shame of having a reputation as a blatantly sexually immoral person and being addicted to sex and in the end going to hell. That will be God's punishment. Now verse 4 very clearly tells you he punishes a sexually immoral and adulterous. That means people who have sex before marriage and people who are married but have sex outside of marriage. He'll punish both these groups. Now as I told you just now, some people think sex before marriage is not sin. Well the Bible says it is sin. And here's one verse. And in Deuteronomy 22 you can read that also. It says the same. And then concerning adultery... As verse 4 says, God will judge them also, the adulterers. Well, Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't only condemn the deed of adultery, the actual physical deed, he also he even condemns the thoughts of adultery. In Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28, even if you look at a woman and you have lustful thoughts, if it's not your wife and, and you desire her sexually, you've committed adultery in your heart. So it is unacceptable for married couples to view pornography together or to watch dirty films. It is unacceptable. It's adultery. And even, even divorce, according to the Bible, getting divorced and getting remarried is a form of adultery. Jesus says, if you get divorced and you remarry, you are committing adultery. The only two reasons given to us in the New Testament why people are allowed to get divorced and remarried is if one of the, if one of the parties in the marriage commits sexual sin or a second reason, that's in Matthew 5, 32 and 99 or second reason, 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, if the unbelieving spouse says, I don't want to be married and they forsake the marriage. So anyone who gets divorced and gets remarried just because, oh, we don't love one another anymore. Oh, we're not compatible. Or, oh, no, we argue too much. That person, according to Jesus, is committing adultery. And this verse says, God will judge the adulteress. Now, I'm going to have a whole sermon on, on divorce in, in the future in my evening uh, sermon series. So wait for that and we'll get to all, all of that. All right, now, Jesus did die for people who commit sexual sin. And so he will forgive you if you are sorry for your sin and you repent of your sin. You turn away from your sin, like David in Psalm 51, or the Samaritan woman, she was sexually immoral. Or like the woman in John chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus says, Go and sin no more, the woman caught in adultery. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and the previous verses speak of people who commit various sexual sins and there's forgiveness for them. So we need to, we must flee sexual sin. We must run away from it. We must flee it as Joseph did in Genesis 39. We must live holy lives as 1 Thessalonians tells us, chapter 4 verse 3, and flee from sexual immorality. And if you burn of desire, you have sexual desire, God has given that to you, that's normal for a man to have a sexual desire for a woman. 
If you're a young single man, that's normal. But Paul says, get married. Get married. Don't burn with passion. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9 and verse 36. Now perhaps you tell me, I want to get married. There's no one on the horizon. Well, then ask the Lord's help. Well, there's no one yet. Ask his help to remain pure. And ask a Christian friend. Please hold me accountable. Please pray for me. And don't put yourself in a position where you'll be tempted to fall into sexual sin. And I'd recommend you read a very small book uh, called The Purity Principle by Randy Alcorn. Very practical. Uh, It'll shake you. And there are practical tips and helps for how to avoid sexual sin. If you're married, well, work hard on having a good marriage. And work hard on having a good intimate life. Because uh, if you do so, that will help you to not be tempted. Well, if you are satisfied at home, you won't be tempted by the world's candy floss. Okay, so that is one way how we're going to avoid worldliness and being like the world. A uh, second way is in verse 5 and 6, and that is to guard yourself against greed, against coveting, the love of money. Is this saying true? Prosperity is more dangerous than adversity. Prosperity is more dangerous than suffering. Is that true? Well, yes, it is true. Now, Randy Alcorn said that he heard a Romanian pastor once say, in my experience, 95% of the believers who face the test of persecution pass it, while 95% who face the test of prosperity fail it. So we need to be watchful against greed and against coveting. Because greed, being greedy for money especially, leads to many other sins. Verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money. 1 Timothy 6, The love of money is a root of all evil, all kinds of evil. If, if I could now ask you just to name some ways or some sins that flow from coveting, from greed. People who are greedy for money, what do they do? They steal. They murder. They lie. They deceive. Deceive. They commit fraud. They commit adultery. I want that husband. He's got money. He'll give me stuff. They deal with drugs. They are busy with human trafficking and prostitution. And you, the list goes on. So people who make an idol of money, those kinds of people, they're like Balaam. They're like Judas. They're like the Pharisees. They're like the false teachers in, in Second Peter and, and the book of Jude. All they do is they focus on the year and now. And they try to satisfy themselves with money and they never find the satisfaction they're looking for. And in the end they lose everything when they die and they miss heaven. So why do you want to chase money? If it only brings temporary satisfaction. And not even temporary satisfaction because it cannot buy the precious things of life. Of this world. It cannot, money cannot buy love. It cannot buy a happy family. It cannot buy and pay for health. Or buy health and now you're healthy because you've got money. You won't get cancer because you've got money. It cannot buy a good reputation 
a life of integrity, a life of sincerity, God's word in your heart, a good night's rest, it cannot buy wisdom. I've got a list of verses here that says exactly all those things I just said. Money cannot buy those things. So why not rather thank the Lord for what you have instead of, instead of complaining about what you do not have and grumbling about what you do not have and being discontent and dissatisfied. Verse 5. Be content with what you have. So tell yourself that that product that is advertised, you don't need it. Tell yourself that you are not going to go into debt in order to get stuff that God hasn't given you. Tell yourself, God is my Father. He will give me what I need. If you have food and clothing with this, you can be content. God cares for the birds. He'll care for His children. God has never left you in the past and He won't leave you now. Verse 5. We, uh, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And actually what the Greek does, that's a quote from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 and verse 8, and Joshua 1 verse 5. Uh, and actually in the Greek text it's a very, very strong negative. What it literally says is, never ever will I leave you. No, never ever will I forsake you. That would be a good way to, to paraphrase it if I could say so. So tell your Father in heaven what you need. Pour your heart out. Tell him you need your daily bread. Go into your room and speak to him in secret. Tell him your needs. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And then obviously you have to make sure it's really a need. It's really a need. Uh, it's not a luxury that you're asking for. Now God does sometimes give luxuries. I'll say something about that now. But tell the Lord of your needs and if it really is a need, then work hard. Work hard for a salary because that's the normal way God provides our needs. Six days you shall work. Uh, it's the normal way. If you will not work, you must not eat. Work hard, as Paul said. Day and night we work to get an income. And sometimes the Lord does give you luxuries. He does give you more than you need. And He does so so that you would have something to share with anyone in need. And perhaps you don't have extra money. You say, oh, I don't have that. Well, you've got stuff in your house you don't use, right? Maybe you've got extra or something you don't need. You can sell that and use the money to care for your family, take care of them, help other Christians, help other people, and give money for the advance of God's kingdom. And that's one way to help you to overcome materialism, to overcome greed. Because what you're doing now is now you're giving instead of gathering for yourself. And, and something else you're doing is you putting away for yourself treasures in heaven. You're storing up treasures in heaven. Not treasures on earth where thieves steal and, and the moths will eat it and rust will get to it. Now perhaps you, you think, you're thinking, it's impossible. It's impossible to overcome materialism. It's everywhere. It's like closer to us than, than oxygen. I mean on television and billboards and the newspaper and magazines. And my colleagues at work, they everywhere it's just greed and getting more for yourself and buying stuff and getting new stuff and getting more stuff. 
Well, I, I'd, I'd suggest to you from Scripture, and not just a suggestion, this is biblical truth, that it is possible to overcome materialism. We don't need to be like the world. I knew a man who was very, very rich. And this guy said, at one stage he was aiming, he, was, he worked in Europe all the time, South African guy. And he said at one stage he was aiming at going for 80 million rand a year. That was where he was aiming, he wanted to earn that. But he was already making lots and lots and lots. And then God saved him. What actually happened is he lost everything and then God saved him. And then after that he had no more desire to just have more and more and more money. So the money he did have, he started using to purchase Bibles and to distribute Bibles. Listen, the Lord is our helper. The Lord will give you what you need. It says in verse 6, the Lord is my helper. So he's your helper to give you what you need, but he's also your helper to be content. He's also your helper to say no to materialism. Isn't that what Philippians 4 means, where Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content? And then we know the famous verse in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That has got nothing to do with winning your rugby match or winning the 100 meter dash. Oh, God has given me the strength. I can do all things through Christ. No, that's to do with being content. He gives you the strength to say no to materialism, to be content with what you have, and to trust Him for what you need. So don't, don't start fearing when the money, you don't have a lot of money, and you start getting afraid, what, what's going to happen to me, what's going to become of me, or you start getting afraid when the world, they want to, um, they want to bribe you, and they want to bully you with money. No, verse... Six says, the Lord's my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's quoted from Psalm 56. So don't, let, don't, don't allow it to get a hold on you when there are parents in schools that, oh, we're going to sponsor the rugby team. And the, really why they're doing that, I want my little boy to be in the team. That's why they're doing that. Don't let it get a hold of you. Don't become anxious and start getting all worried because there's some rich person at work and he's got enough money and now he's really paid, he's really bribed whoever so that he can be promoted and you don't get the promotion. Don't let that get to you, verse 6 tells us. The Lord's my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is in the context of money. So what's man going to do to you? So don't be afraid of them. Even if they are rich, even if they do have some important position, or they've got status, you have got treasures that they know nothing about. And to tell you the truth, everything that is theirs also belongs to you, because it belongs to Jesus and you are one with Christ. You've been married to Christ in community of property. What is His is also yours. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 21 to 23. And actually you are like a, a, just a normal client sitting in a restaurant and then the manager comes and he's, he's nasty to you. And little does he realize, and one day he'll realize, and one day the world will realize, oh goodness, this is the restaurant owner's son. Let's pray. Our Father, it is my prayer and my desire that you would help our people we do get tempted in all these areas, Lord. 
Otherwise, if we didn't, it wouldn't be necessary for these things to be in Scripture. We know it's here to help us, to help us fight these temptations and help us to be obedient. Please would you help us, by your Spirit, to live obedient lives, to live God-honoring and God-pleasing lives. Please would you give us strength, for we are weak, but you are strong. Give us grace, build your church, strengthen your people, encourage those Christians suffering, encourage the persecuted church, encourage our brothers in the ministry, fellow missionaries, fellow pastors, just fellow members of churches, Christians, who are struggling and suffering. Build them up in their most holy faith. And also for us, in Jesus' name. Amen.